was that? And he's like, oh, it's just Amanda. And, and uh, he's, I was like, what would she say? She's like, oh, she's going into labor. And I was like, well, you should go. He's like, no, well, we're good. I think Amanda was like dropping the kids off at, is this true? Like you drove up to Everett to drop off one of your, your first child so that you could go have your second. Uh, you've learned this reality. Congratulations. Let's move on. Okay, so these are just birth pains. I mean, it seems like it's here, but it's not really here. Verse 9. But, having said that, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake, for my, uh, sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand for what you'll say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's pretty intense. Verse 14. Now it's about to get serious. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Okay, now something has shifted. That's like lots of really bad things are going to happen to you. There's going to be things in the world that are happening. Uh, still, that's not the end or, or this next prophecy that's about to happen. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. What is this abomination of desolation? Well, well, if you had been uh, a Jewish person, you would have known what, what, what's being referenced here. This is actually a reference to Old Testament prophecies about a time that's coming when something's going to happen in the temple that is actually going to bring upon the judgment of God that causes desolation. It's going to be some sort of sacrilegious event that's just too much, and God is going to have to do something. This was prophesied in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus spoke these words. So they would have heard it. Now, it it might not pop into your head, these prophecies, but they're there. You can go back and look at them. I'm not going to read them for you. Ben Witherington III says this uh, of the abomination of desolation. He says, in Mark's text, we are not talking about something like a, like a heathen altar that's erected in the temple, but rather someone who causes the temple to be so desecrated and therefore so abandoned, and God's judgment will come in. So, at this point, I need to give you a brief history lesson. And all the history buffs said, hallelujah. Here we go. There is something that happened starting in A.D. 66, which is about 35 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Okay, so it's within one generation because in ancient times, a generation was thought to be about 40 years. So in A.D. 66, something happens. The tension between the Jewish people and the Roman authorities who were ruling and governing over all of Israel, uh, it comes to a boiling point. And this group known as the Zealots, 
they finally, and they've been trying to do this for a while, but they finally get the backing that they need, and they come, and they stage a coup, and they overthrow the government at that time, uh, and they take back the city of Jerusalem for the Jews. Okay, this happens in around 66, 67 A.D. And these are really, this is really a militant Jewish group. And so they're not overly concerned with holiness or continuing the practices of the religion of the Jewish people. And so what ends up happening when they take power, and Josephus, who is a historian of the day, tells us a lot of this, is that what happened is the, the, the zealot leadership at that time was allowing all sorts of people into the temple. So there were criminals in the temple. There were even criminals going into the Holy of Holies, which is the most sacred space. Uh, in fact, only the high priest of Israel was allowed to go in there once a year. And we've got, we, you know, we've got criminals running around. People were being murdered in the temple courts. It, it was chaos. It was sacrilegious. It was an abomination. Uh, and on top of all that, some sort of a sick joke, they, they, they call or they sort of appoint a new high priest and his name was Fanny. I just think that's interesting. This guy should not have been in that position. And um, this very well could have been the fact, the historical fact that Mark, who's writing about this time, he's writing in the mid-60s, he might be referring to all these things that are happening when he says, let the reader understand. That's sort of a parenthetical comment that's probably put in there by the author Mark. Jesus, Jesus probably didn't say that. Mark's putting that in. Let, let you understand. This very well might be happening. So by A.D. 69, all these things that Jesus had predicted in this first part of his speech have come true. Okay, And we know that because we can look at the history uh, that Josephus has written and other history, and we can read the book of Acts, which documents the beginning of the Jesus movement, those 35, 40 years between when Jesus died, rose, and ascended, and, and when all this is happening in Jerusalem. False prophets and messiahs have come on the scene. Wars and rumors of wars are circulating. Earthquakes and natural disasters are happening. Anybody remember uh, reading and studying was it middle school, about Pompeii. Okay, that's happening at this time, you know. Volcanoes are exploding. Birds' heads are coming off. What is going on? Disease, famines are sweeping the land. We have records of all these things happening in those 40 years. And the first generation of Christians were being persecuted exactly like Jesus predicted that they would be. Okay? The persecution was intense. And then the abomination of desolation occurs. All these things have happened. And what happens next in Israel's history actually proves this first part of the prediction true. Jesus got this right. Because in AD 70, the Romans had had enough, and they decided to put an end to this little revolt. And they send in, the emperor sends in the full might of his armies. They surround the city of Jerusalem, which is a walled city. And they carry out a brutal and ultimately effective campaign of siege warfare. 
Do you know what siege warfare is? You surround a city and you starve out the inhabitants. And Jesus had already given his followers a warning of this and told them what to do when this happened. Read verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he should not be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one who is on a housetop go down and enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in, the, in, in those days, pray that it will not be in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut the days short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So what actually happened in real history is that the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem, enacted a campaign of siege warfare, and wiped out a larger percentage of the Jewish population, percentage here, than has ever happened in the history of the world. We're talking a higher percentage than even during the Holocaust. Of the Jewish population were killed. Uh, One scholar uh, describes this time in AD 70 this way. He says, there was savagery, slaughter, disease, famine, and mothers eating their own children. These are the realities of siege warfare. This is why Jesus, in his foresight, and the revelation the Father had given him about these times, says, says, don't stay. Run. And he tells them to go and flee. So Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the globe. And they were forbidden to return to their holy city for fear of death except for one day a year where they were allowed by the Romans to return to the Wailing Wall. You might have heard of this. The one wall left from the original temple to remember what had happened, to lament what had happened. And to this day, 2,000 years later, the temple is still not rebuilt. This is pretty intense stuff. Now I want to explain to you the theological significance of this near-term prediction fulfilled. If if this is true. Again, I'm not dogmatic about that necessarily. I'll explain. But I think there's a theological significance that we have to understand about what Mark's trying to do here uh, with the fulfillment of this prophecy Well, actually, the prediction of it, and then, of course, we see that it's actually fulfilled. Um, One one scholar said it this way. This prophecy is less about the end of the world, and it's more about the end of a 
world. And the world that is ending is, is the world as the Jewish people knew it. Okay? It's no longer going to be the same, and it never has been the same after A.D. 70. I don't have time to show you this, but actually, you've got to take my word on it here. But, but what you should think about, if you just read through Mark from start to finish, when you got to this prediction that Jesus is making, um, this prediction of the destruction of the temple and the end of a world as they knew it for the Jewish people, Jesus is forecasting um, for his disciples and for us uh, what is going to happen after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension into the heavenly realm to sit and reign from the right hand of the Father. Which he says just in the previous chapter that 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 is what's going to happen. He's going to throw out for us the final event that needs to happen to complete the transition from the old way of God, of people connecting to God, to the new way of people connecting to God. Okay? Does that make sense to this point? And it hasn't happened yet, so Jesus has to predict, to explain that it will happen. And this is so important to comprehend because it's the much bigger argument that Mark is making in his gospel. That he's revealing about who Jesus is and what he's here to do and, and, and why he's doing it. And that's why this discourse, the Olivet Discourse, uh, this speech on the Mount of Olives comes right before Jesus' arrest, right before he's taken to court, right before he's executed, and then eventually is resurrected in a sense. So Mark is pre-explaining all of these historical events that must happen as part of God's eternal plan to relocate the place and the means of true worship from, away from, Jerusalem and the temple and just one ethnocentric religion away from that to a new place which is in the person of Jesus the Christ. So that now Jesus has become the unique and exclusive new and better sacrifice, the new and better priest, the new and better temple. The temple being the manifestation of the presence of God. And now anyone can go and be near to him and receive his sacrifice and have a high priest. Anyone from any nation, Jew, non-Jew, whoever it may be. Jesus is saying this is going to be the last historical event that finishes that switch. It's pretty profound stuff. But he has to predict it because it only will come after his death and resurrection and ascension. And, and, and so, this is, what's going, this is what Jesus said, this is what's going to happen in the new era of how people connect with God. It's the age of the church. And that age has been going for almost 2,000 years. And if you study the history of it, it's really wild to see after A.D. 70 what happened. Because up until that point, uh, Christians were still meeting in the synagogue, still meeting in the temple. It was, it was very connected. And after A.D. 70, 
really the church emerged as, as a separate entity. Um, partially because with the scattering of the Jews, Jewish people, Christians were being blamed in part for it. And you really see the prophecy beginning to take hold. Okay, so that's the near-term prediction, and Jesus got it right. Look back here at the rest of Jesus' speech to see what he's going to say about the future beyond A.D. 70, because he's going to give us a little bit on that as well. You ready? Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then He will send out His angels and gather His elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is a prediction about the far future, someday still coming. Now I think because of the way interwoven near and far prophecy work, always in the Bible, I think a lot of those same things, those predictions that happened before AD 70 will be a part of the tribulation that comes leading up to the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So you will clouds, you will see the birth pains in the same way, and the same advice uh, remains. Now this language of the Son of Man, again, it would have been recognized by the Jewish people as Old Testament prophetic language because the Son of Man had been promised hundreds and hundreds of years before, and Jesus is now identifying himself as that Son of Man that has always been predicted. And we can't know much more than that about this far future. Jesus doesn't tell us. But we do know it's going to be very public. It's going to be very powerful when Jesus returns and his angels will be with him and they will gather the elect, all his disciples, all true Christians from every corner of the globe will somehow be gathered together. It's a beautiful picture. And that's all we get about this far someday future. Jesus is then going to shift back again to sort of a principle of both near and far prophecy. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn, its, uh, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So, alas, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now I think when he refers to this generation, he's referring back to his first near prediction of A.D. 70. Because that's within 40 years of when he spoke those words, which is a generation, that they would see those first things happen. Obviously they won't see that second thing happen. But Jesus is pretty okay with them not knowing. And we'll see why that is in just a second. So read with me in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Stop there for a second. This is unreal. Jesus is saying, I don't even know. So if you don't understand some of the mysteries of God, you're in really good company. 
Jesus doesn't understand. You might have picked up on it in the first near prophecy. He said, let's hope it doesn't happen in the winter, which is what, that means he didn't know when it was going to happen. This is really good to know, that to be fully human, to be a perfect human being living in God's world as Jesus was, as he put on the full humanity of God, it's okay to still live in mystery. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to understand everything. That's not what it means to be a Christian. That is not what it means. And if anyone's ever told you that to be a Christian means that you have to have all the answers, they were lying to you. They were false teachers. Jesus doesn't even know when this will happen. But he says, verse 33, Be on your guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he comes suddenly and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, to all of you, is stay awake. Now this last section, this is the piece of this, this speech that I think is for all of us. And it's actually what Jesus has been building to. He gives them a few nuggets. He gives them some helpful advice to run when they see the abomination of desolation. But this is really the heart of Jesus' teaching. And it's the way you wait for the near events. It's, way, it's the way you wait for the far events of the Son of Man coming on the clouds at the end of the church age. This is an issue of discipleship. How do we follow Jesus well? And Jesus is going to teach us that to live well in the mystery and the suspense and the tension of the in-betweens of the Christian life, and we have these sorts of mysteries, suspenses, and tensions in all parts of life, not just in sort of understanding the end of the age, how do we live well? Remember the two questions. When will these things take place, and what will be the signs that they're about to happen? And Jesus answers that question, nobody knows, not even me. And beware of anybody who thinks that they understand these things. These things are an indiscernible mystery. Now, if you're like me, you don't like that answer. <laughs> you don't like the answer. I like discernible mysteries. Like, it's okay to kind of tease me with a little mystery, but you better finish that show. Stop with season six, seven, eight. Just finish it. End the mystery. I like answerable questions. I like solvable problems. I like chartable timelines. And I think this is one of the reasons that our city struggles with the Christian message. We are the most educated city in the United States. More advanced degrees per capita than anywhere else in the country. In large part, we seek education because we value understanding and we value answers to questions. So the people of this city hate to be out of the know, to left, left in the dark. We don't like it. We're a city of new technologies. We are people who create the solutions to age-old problems. We do it faster, cheaper, better. The people of this city hate any form of unsolvable riddle. We are the city of the future. We are the people leading the way into the future 
We're not holding on to the past, onto unnecessary tradition. The people of the city hate to have the future happen to them. They want to create. All, all those things, Jesus is saying the exact opposite. You don't get to create the future. The future is going to happen to you. You don't get to know the, the, the solution to this problem. You don't get to be in the know. And so how do we live in the face of this mystery? Jesus is going to tell us three things. He's going to say, be patient, be ready, and trust. There's, there's probably not a better three things that you could say of this is the essence of the Christian life. Patience, readiness, and trust. And a huge aspect of, of living well into the mystery, just let's take a look at this first, uh, this first important um, value, patience, um, is learning to sort through bad expectations. And um, all of these bad expectations that we create in our head tend uh, to, to re- uh, revolve around this one question, which is, I know God will do things this way. And so when we say, I know God will do things this way, then underneath that, we tend, we tend to come up with all these false expectations. We say, God wants to give his people clarity as much as possible. God never promised that. We say this, God wants to make life easy for his people. God, God never promised that. We say, God will do what he does. He doesn't need me to participate. God, God never says that. In fact, if we just look at the promises that Jesus makes right here in this speech, here's actually what we, we find are the expectations we should have. We should expect to be delivered over to councils, to be beaten in the synagogues, to stand before governors and kings, to bear witness before Jesus. We should expect brothers, sisters, family members to come against us, even put us to death for Jesus' name. In fact, Jesus says if the Lord hadn't cut short these days, no human being would be saved. And then he says, but concerning the day or the hour, nobody knows. I'm not going to give you clarity. The Father has chosen not even to give me clarity. And then he says, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves his home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. There's work to be done. These are the promises that Jesus makes. These are the true expectations for the people of God. And part of patience looks like living through all of that. Waiting upon the future to happen. Even as we work, even as we suffer for the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. So with these new expectations, with patience being multiplied in us because we actually know what Jesus has promised, how do we be ready? There's seven commands in these 37 verses of this speech. 
And they, they go like this. Be on your guard, be on your guard, be on your guard. Keep awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. You think he's trying to drive home a point? Thanks to Pastor Ryan, we, he gave me this Urban Dictionary uh, definition of staying woke. <laughs> Urban Dictionary says, derived from stay awake is to keep informed of the S-storm going on around you in times of turmoil and conflict, specifically on occasions when the media is being heavily filtered, such as events of Ferguson, Missouri in 2011 or 14. Thanks, Ryan. You got to stay woke. If you don't know about that, you better. You got you to gotta be ready. Because, Jesus says, God, the Master, has, has given you the keys. He's given you work to do, uh, and he's left, but don't fall asleep because he's coming back, and you don't know when it's going to happen. And, and so what do we do? What does this look like? doesn't mean you just stay up all night, but it actually means that with every waking hour that you have, with every gift and talent and treasure that God has given you, you seek to maximize all of it, so that if the master comes back at any moment, he can say, you're doing well with what I gave you. And in the parallel account of this speech in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew actually inserts the parable of the talents, which is a parable about God giving different amounts to different servants and then coming back. And one of the servants, two of the servants invest it well and multiply it. One of the servants digs a ditch or digs a hole, puts the money in the hole, and the master comes back and said, what are you doing? Why didn't you multiply that which I gave you? So Matthew puts that in there to help us understand what readiness looks like. Readiness doesn't look like anxiety. doesn't look like not sleeping well. It looks like working hard to use all the things that God has given you for all the things that God cares about. So that if he returns and when he returns, he looks at you and says, well done. The third thing, and perhaps the most important, to live into this mystery is that we need to trust. Our intense need for control in, in our society is really our lack of trust for anyone else. This is why we have this unquenchable desire for predictability, because if we can predict it, if we know when it's coming and how it's coming and what it'll look like, then we can control it. I mean, is this really the better way of life? To know everything? Like, do you want to know the day that you'll die? Do you want to know how long the relationship you're in will last? I think we think we'd like to know that. But I think when, when, we, when we wrestle with that question enough, what we realize is that the best things in life require some mystery and some trusting. So there can be no love without mystery and trust. I cannot actually love my wife if there's no mystery. And I can't love her if I don't trust her. There can be no joy of surprise without mystery and trust. There can be no beauty without mystery 
and trust. I need you to listen real closely right here. This might be the most, I hope, I hope this is good for you. So listen very closely. Mystery and trust are in business together, but they're not identical and they're not of equal value. Okay? That's a perversion of the role of mystery in the way Jesus is talking about it here. And I think it's a, it's a perversion that sometimes slips into the Christian way of life. Uh, which is to say that mystery serves trust. Trust does not serve mystery. So think of a mystery, mystery and trust in, in the relationship of love. If trust is broken, mystery now becomes unlivable sometimes. It becomes so frightening if trust is broken. If mystery is broken, like I understand all sorts of things about Allie that I used to not understand, my wife that is, trust does not now become unlivable or scary. It continues on. It's not this perfectly symmetrical relationship between mystery and trust. So we don't come to the altar of mystery and worship it and say, ah, the mysteries of God. I love the mysteries. I just want to stay in the mystery. I I just want as much mystery as possible. But we do cry out for more and more trust. God, help me trust you more. Even as mystery disappears, as we learn and understand more and more of the plan of God and the details of who God is, our trust can continue to build even when we have more answers. So we should want understanding, but when we don't get it, it's okay because trust fills that gap perfectly. It's exactly what's happening here with Jesus. His disciples are desiring to understand the mystery of these things to come, and Jesus gives them some understanding uh, that they didn't have before, but not enough so that, so that they don't need to trust him. It's still about trusting Jesus. It will always be about trusting him. It's the most important part of the Christian life. It's the only way that the best life is possible that trust infiltrates all parts of your life. And it starts by trusting ultimately in Jesus, in God. Now what does this trust look like in real time? When I was a young boy, maybe nine years old, um, I, I did a lot, well, growing up I did a lot of water skiing, and there's these man-made water ski lakes, and usually they dig them out. They just find a big plot of land, they dig a giant hole, fill it with water. Uh, but there was this one uh, lake called Maytown Lake, uh, and, and they had dug out this uh, lake, uh, but parts of the edge of the lake kind of became like quicksand, because the water was sort of infiltrating the structure of the land. And our parents told us, do not go over there, which is on the other side of the lake where nobody was. All the cars and trailers and everything were on, on this side of the lake. And it's a pretty big lake to, to go around. Uh, but of course, we're kids, so we're like, we're going to go to the other side of the lake and see what this quicksand stuff that they told us about. We want to see the mystery, right? We want to know what's going to happen. And so we walk over there, and I was with a couple of older kids, and this is what always happens to the younger kids with the older kids. Uh, they said to me, hey, Dave, you're the lightest. Why don't you see what this feels like? And so I step into this sand, 
And all of a sudden, I start to sink. And I'm sinking. And it's up to my knees. And I'm going deep, down. And it's not stopping. And so what do I do? Well, trust kicks in. And I cry out at the top of my lungs for my dad. And my dad's on the other side of the lake, which is probably about a half mile, well, probably not a half mile, probably a quarter of a mile around the lake. And he hears me scream at the top of my lungs. And then everybody else starts screaming. And I just see across the lake, because it's not that big of a lake, I see my dad just bolt. And I swear to God, he would have won an Olympic race. I've never seen a human being run that fast in my life. And he got there, and it was up to my chest by this time. And he pulls me out, and he saves me. You don't need to understand everything that's happening to you when you're in danger. When the world is caving around, you don't need to understand it. You just need to know who to cry out for when it happens. You see that? That's the who question. That's all that matters. When the end of all things comes, that's the only thing that matters. Who will save? Do you know the Son of Man? Jesus says, I'm coming on the clouds one day. Do you know the Son of Man? If not, you can. By simply and humbly receiving the free gift of God's grace, you get forgiveness, a new life in the Spirit, new purpose, new hope. And it's all available by simply receiving the work of Jesus by faith. And you can know the Son of God. And when the end comes, you can cry out his name. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the parallel passage that we read today in Mark, Matthew adds a little detail for us that I think is pretty profound. Listen to this. He records these words of Jesus. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And they will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And all the elect will be gathered from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Friends, on that day, it won't matter how or why the trumpet works. The only thing that will matter is if you hear it and you know personally who is making it sound. Let's pray. Father God, help us by your Spirit to be ready for this day. In each and every moment of our life now, help us to be ready for that day when the trumpet sounds and you come back. If we do not know you, God, send your spirit right now to change our hearts that we could know you personally so that when you come, it's not fear and trembling, but joy and excitement and cries of God save us, Hosanna. 
If we know you, but we're distracted by the things of this earth and our own glory, help us to wake up and start living for your greater beauty, your greater kingdom, your greater way in this world. Jesus, when trials and persecution come our way, when conflict comes, give us the strength and the grace to witness well to the way that we trust you in all things, no matter what we encounter. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Son of Man, who will come again in power and glory. Praise be to God. Amen. Each week we celebrate the Lord's table. This is a table uh, that connects us all into the family of Christ into the family of our king who is coming again. And he says when he comes again, he's going to eat this with us. He's going to get us all around the table where enemies become friends. It's a great, great promise. On the night he was betrayed, just a few days after this speech he gave about the future, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that I'm about to give to you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood that I'm about to pour out for you for the forgiveness of sin. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come again. And he's talking about this day that he predicted. If you're trusting in Jesus, maybe even if today is the first day that that it just clicked for you that that I want to know personally the Son of Man, all you do to either proclaim that or to accept that as you come up here, you rip off a piece of the bread, the body of Christ, you dip it in the cup, the blood of Christ, and you eat it as a way of symbolizing that you are willfully choosing that Jesus is your way forward, that you're connecting to him and to God through him for the rest of your life. So I hope many and all of us get to participate in this table because of our faith in Jesus. Then we're going to pass around a basket and you can put your connect cards in there or your prayer coasters um, as we sort of offer up to God part of us because of what he's given already. So when you're ready, come and have fellowship with the coming King.